Chapter Twenty Four of the Riddle Ring by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four. What is to be done first? What is to be done? Above all, what is to be done first? Such was the thought that was rushing round and round in Jim Conrad's bewildered mind, like the blind wave in the cavern the long sea-hall which Tennyson pictured. Such was the thought that surged and stormed blindly enough, and beat for a while all purposelessly in poor Conrad's mind, as he left Mr. Whaley's company on that epoch-making night. It was now clear that Rose had determined to get back his deserted wife by force, if needs were and in such force he would unquestionably, as Whaley had pointed out, have at least the traditions of English law on his side. Jim did not care three straws about the threatened danger to himself. He would not have minded, anyhow, it would not have turned him from his purpose for one moment. In such a matter he did not hold his life at a pin's fee. But, in fact, he did not now believe there was any such danger, he reasoned, as most of us do, from our common daily experience. "'I have never heard of assassinations after the Sicilian or the Corsican fashion in England,' he would have said. "'And I don't believe that anything of the kind is going to be attempted for my special benefit.' That danger, therefore, did not really enter into his calculation. But the other was a danger, clear, probable, all but certain. The very sensation of capturing and carrying off in London the wife whom he had deserted would, as Jim knew, be a delightful experience to a man like Sir Francis Rose. But what was to be done? What was to be done first? It was now ten o'clock, no more. Could he call at Clelia's hotel at such an hour and put her on her guard? It would be better, much better, he thought, if in the first instance he were to see Gertrude Moorfield. He could speak more freely to her. He could learn from her what were likely to be Clelia's resolves at such a moment of danger. It seemed a strange sort of proceeding to call on a young lady at a West End hotel about ten o'clock in the evening. But he knew that Miss Moorfield was not the least in the world conventional, and that she would have insisted on the right of girls to carry latch-keys if she had thought about such a matter at all. Anything, Jim told himself, would be better than allowing a whole night to pass without giving Clelia, directly or indirectly, some warning of the danger. So he drove to the hotel where the girls were staying, almost as nervous about asking to see a young woman after ten o'clock as if he were doing some deed calculated to fright the isle from its propriety. Arrived at the hotel, he went to the office, asked to see Miss Moorfield, and wrote upon the card he was sending up, Important, want to see you particularly, and deeply underlined the you. He was promptly shown into a small drawing-room, which was quite empty, and the lights of which were turned down. The lights were turned up again, and he was left alone for an anxious moment. Then he heard a rustle of skirts, and Miss Moorfield came into the room. 
she was looking pale but very pretty and was no more discomposed than if it had been jim's regular habit to call at ten o'clock every night she quietly shook hands with him and came to the point at once what is the matter she asked that brings me here so late she seemed to chafe at the awkward unnecessary question born of jim's confusion yes yes tell me you wanted to see me particularly yes i wanted to see you and not miss vine not at first anyhow it concerns her then it concerns her tell me do people come in here much he asked glancing round at the empty room not at this hour later yes when the theatres are over we can talk here quite safely go on miss vine's husband i mean of course lady rose's husband is in london now i know she told me she has seen him he is determined that she shall return to him she will not she has told me we have talked it all over she will die first she has told me so all the same he is determined to get her back he can't get her back he will try you do not know the man i know a good deal of him and i know that he is capable of anything there are laws the girl said contemptuously there are no laws that can prevent a husband from resuming his hold over his wife true gertrude said with a light of anger flashing triumphantly into her eyes you have said it there are no laws in this country or in any other i suppose to protect women against the brutal tyranny of men well well conrad said a little impatiently for he thought the general question of woman's rights and woman's wrongs was rather out of place just then and he did not know how soon some of the theatres might be closing at all events i don't believe there are any laws which would enable lady rose to escape from the control of her husband he hated speaking of lady rose but what could he do he could not go on talking of miss vine escaping from her husband and he did not like to speak of clelia miss morefield saw this and frowned a little let us call her clelia she said i detest to hear her called lady rose there was a generous flush on the girl's face so do i said jim earnestly and somehow gertrude seemed to flush again well what i came for conrad went on is to warn her of the danger to warn you in the first instance for you understand her and you can tell her all you think she ought to know and then if she likes to see me she can send for me but you have told me nothing except that there is danger danger of what there is no danger in his trying to get her to go back to him she will not go then he will carry her off by force my dear mr conrad this is not sir cassia this is safe and commonplace london people don't do these things i tell you miss morefield that you are mistaken this man will do that or any other thing that he makes up his mind to i have come at a knowledge which appears to me absolutely certain that he is determined to have her back again 
and it will be only a delightful new sensation to him to carry her off by mere force jim felt somewhat disappointed in miss morefield's manner she did not seem he thought as much alarmed as she ought to be about her friend poor jim had his mind full only of one subject and he made that quite plain perhaps he made it just a little too plain under the circumstances decidedly he was not very clever in understanding the feelings of girls a change came over gertrude's manner she dropped her eyes and remained silent for a moment then she spoke in a much softer tone mr conrad both she and i have absolute confidence in you and in your judgment and in your friendship if you tell us that you really think there is danger i know there is he exclaimed utter danger then i am sure there is danger i can't tell you how i came to know it he said but there it is we can take it on your word she answered with a sweet resigned kind of smile which touched jim conrad much although he did not at the moment think of its significance and it is for you and me to guard her against it we are her friends she has no better friends jim declared earnestly she has no other friends now well what can we do had we not better tell her at once i mean had you not better tell her perhaps so oh yes i think so but just a moment first when do you think this attempt might be made i don't know any time this night perhaps in this hotel full of people it's not likely but it would be quite possible the man is equal to anything suppose he gave his name suppose he is known here to be the man he represents himself to be suppose he claimed his wife she couldn't say that she wasn't his wife you couldn't say it who would prevent him from taking her in his arms and carrying her off this is terrible said the girl turning pale if i were here said jim i'd kill him rather than let him carry her off if i were she said miss morefield i'd kill myself rather than let him carry me off and i hope she'll do it jim shook his head sadly the same thought had sometimes flashed through his own mind and through his own heart it mustn't come to that he said in a despondent tone that half belied the assurance of his words if i was she i'd rather do it said the impetuous little maid than drag out life in enforced companionship with a wretch like him well hadn't we better see her and talk with her jim asked feeling it hopeless then and there to argue back to first principles in morals or would you rather tell it all to her yourself and send for me tomorrow supposing that you want me oh no you must come now and see her at once you must tell her what we are to do all right let us go gertrude led the way they went upstairs without exchanging a word as they went then they reached the sitting-room and gertrude opened the door and went in and said clelia dear here is mr conrad 
Clelia had been leaning on the chimney-piece with head drooping. Before she had time to turn round, Jim had caught sight of the attitude and interpreted it. The attitude was not that of anxiety into which doubt and possibility may enter. It was the attitude of one who expects to hear the worst, and only waits in enforced patience until the worst be formally announced. Then Clelia turned round and gave Jim her hand. It was a hand of marble coldness. "'I knew it was about me when you sent for Gertrude. I knew that you two were conspiring together to save me from some danger. You two, my best, my only friends.' Jim's heart was touched beyond all expression when he remembered that but a few minutes before Gertrude herself had said just the same thing in only slightly different words, that she and he were Clelia's only friends. "'You could not have two friends on this earth,' he exclaimed, "'who would go farther to keep you from harm?' "'As if I didn't know that!' And with an almost childish impulse of confidence, she took for a moment a hand of each in hers, and Jim felt in his very soul that it would be a rapture for him to die defending her. Well, Clelia went on, having put down her outbreak of emotion, tell me your news. I shall not be frightened. Perhaps I can already guess it. Perhaps you can, Jim answered sadly, and then, as Gertrude seemed to leave him to tell the tale, he told her in a low, rapid, but clear voice, just what he had told Miss Moorfield. "'I was afraid it would come to this,' Clelia said quietly. "'Well, what is to be done? I will not go back to him. I feel like some heroine of a melodrama,' and she smiled a wan smile. "'I will never be taken alive.' "'Quite right!' Gertrude exclaimed, stamping her little foot, and with a warlike flash from her bright eyes. "'Well, it must not come to that,' Jim said soothingly. "'But what's the good of saying that?' Gertrude demanded impatiently, imperiously. "'Tell her what she is to do, how she is to escape.' In all this confusion, Jim looked with some surprise at the pretty, impulsive girl with the puckered eyebrows and the angry eyes. There were moods of Gertrude tonight which he could not quite understand. "'You must both get away out of this,' he said as quietly as he could. "'Yes, yes, we know all that. We are not going to stay here to be taken like rats in a hole. Where can Clelia get to this night, this very night?' "'Tell us! Tell us! Can't we get to the continent this very night?' "'You can't go to the continent tonight,' Jim said. "'There is no train to Dover or Folkestone before the morning.' "'But we can go somewhere, somewhere out of this, can't we?' the unsatisfied girl insisted. "'I don't care where we go if we only get out of London.' "'Have you much luggage?' asked Jim, thrown into a practical mood of consideration by the girl's impracticable impatience. "'Luggage! Luggage! As if we were likely to drag around great piles of Saratoga trunks! 
or as if it would matter whether we left them behind now it was becoming clear to jim in his practical mood that for the two women to decamp from a west end hotel at eleven o'clock at night would be simply to give sir francis rose or anybody else the easiest way of getting on their track but he was at first almost afraid to say this lest gertrude might think him too easy-going about clelia's safety which indeed was the last thought likely to come into gertrude's mind let us risk this night clelia said with a quiet smile night brings counsel are we not told and morning brings comfort to-morrow we may be able to see our way a little clearer whether the comfort comes or not but suppose something does happen to-night jim broke in with a renewal of his former alarm suppose he chooses to make a melodramatic business of it this very night i tell you that the man only lives on sensation and that his whole life is one long indulgence in the delight of new emotions it might just suit him to make a grand melodramatic scene here this very night but against that we can have no security clelia said in her heart she could not help wondering how entirely jim's analysis of her husband's nature and temperament agreed with her own we can't get away to-night without giving an alarm and calling attention to our flight to-morrow we may be able to do something better let us part for the night mr conrad and you can come and see gertrude and me to-morrow yes i think you're right jim answered almost reluctantly i don't see that anything much can be done to-night anyhow i am strongly against your going to the continent nobody can cross the channel in these days without its being found out by anybody who cares to know and who can follow in a few hours much better go to new york to-morrow well i shall have thought something out i am sure you had better keep in london and lie low for a day or two but not here of course not here you can't go into a suburb the people in a suburb always take notice of newcomers no no some crowded central place where strangers are going and coming all day long how long may i stay here and talk to you he looked first at clelia and then at gertrude which of you is hostess i suppose i ought to be hostess clelia said with composure because i am a married woman but then you see i don't pass for a married woman here which of us is hostess gertrude dear oh how do i know and what does it matter who cares which of us is hostess well which of you will tell me how late i may stay with you to-night must i go before the theatres empty out and people come back here if you ask me gertrude said i don't care three straws i think clelia interposed you had better go now mr conrad there is nothing to be gained by seeming to be eccentric we are in a country of conventionality oh conventionality gertrude exclaimed and it seemed as if she could say no more that one word appeared to express thoughts too deep for words 
at all events for words that had to be spoken within a limited lapse of time. "'Come to-morrow, Mr. Conrad,' Clelia said. "'Come to breakfast or to luncheon.' She spoke with as much quietude as if she were an ordinary London hostess, inviting some friend to an everyday sort of entertainment. Jim was immensely impressed by her courage and her coolness. "'Never mind about breakfast or luncheon,' he said. "'May I come at ten? I shall have thought things out by then, and I don't suppose now that anything will happen to-night. Anyhow, we must chance it.' "'Come at ten, by all means,' Clelia answered. "'Nothing will happen to-night.' Jim was about to take his leave. "'I want to say a word or two to you before you go,' Clelia said. "'Gertrude, darling, would you mind leaving us for a few minutes?' "'No,' Gertrude returned. "'Not the least in the world. But I, too, want to say a word to Mr. Conrad before he goes.' "'Oh, do you?' Clelia asked, with a glance of bright good humour. "'Yes, I do,' Gertrude affirmed doggedly. "'So, Clelia, when you have talked with Mr. Conrad, you can go away for the night, don't you see? I mean, from this room, of course. I shall come to you in your bedroom.' "'Very well, dear,' Clelia answered, and Gertrude disappeared. The moment she had gone, the whole manner of Clelia changed. An intense earnestness settled on her, which made her face seem like that of the statue of a stern, despairing goddess. "'My friend,' she said in a low, firm tone, "'I appeal to you as the one only friend who could help me at this pass, as I want to be helped. The help I ask from you I could not ask from Gertrude.' "'What is there that I would not do for you?' "'Perhaps you will not do this for me, but I do so hope and so trust that you will.' "'Tell me, tell me!' Jim said breathlessly. "'Well, you know as well as I do, you believe as well as I do, that life, mere life, life, life is not a great thing, it's not the only thing. Life without love and the sense of honour and purity. Oh, you must understand.' And Jim began to understand. "'Then,' she went on, "'will you bring me, when you come to-morrow, at ten o'clock, wasn't it, a strong, sharp dagger? "'I shouldn't be able to make any use of the common or garden knife of commerce,' she said with another wan smile. "'It would bend or break or something, and I want to be quite, quite sure. "'Bring me a sharp strong dagger with a keen point and a broadening blade. I promise you that it shall only be used in the very, very last resort. But I want to use it effectively, then. You will do this for me? You will not refuse? You must understand the feelings of a woman, the horror, the loathing. You will do this for me and her voice sank into an exquisite sweetness and plaintiveness of tone. My friend, in this my very only friend. Jim had a moment of bewildering doubt and agony. 
then he said firmly i will do this that man shall not get hold of you better go to your god thank you she said fervently and she pressed his hand and one thing more if the worst should happen or the better if anyhow poor gertrude should be left alone you will turn your thoughts to her will you not will you not she did not wait for an answer for an answer which conrad could not have given but she turned away and ran out of the room in a moment gertrude entered i don't want to keep you long she said with a certain vague suggestion of scorn in her voice but i want you to do one thing for me and not to tell anybody of it i want you to buy me a good small revolver and come here at half-past nine to-morrow and explain it all to me and show me how to use it and then load it for me what on earth do you want a revolver for jim asked with a quite involuntary emphasis on the you the thought in his mind was you were safe enough francis rose does not propose to carry you off i want it to defend clelia if that wretch tries to carry her off i will shoot him oh i wouldn't do that jim remonstrated it would be absurd all right she said with scornful eyes i can buy it for myself there is a gunsmith's in this street only a few doors off i noticed it to-day but i thought a man might be of some use to me only i suppose he can't be well we can do without him some of us at all events jim was bewildered clelia's request was tragic gertrude's bordered terribly on the comic would they sell the girl a revolver he asked of himself yes i suppose they would i'd better see that she gets a safe little weapon that won't burst in her hands on the first go-off he remembered in his boyish days having bought a little derringer in a london shop after long scraping up of pocket money and how at the first pulling of the trigger the derringer simply burst and a fragment of the barrel's metal lodged in his right hand and could not be got out for weeks after that is the sort of weapon she would be sure to buy he thought only with five or six chambers to increase the danger well she asked impatiently all right he answered or all wrong i don't know which i'll bring you the revolver to-morrow thank you and good-night in a moment he was alone and he went down the stairs and got into the hall and passed out into the street hardly knowing where he was or what he was doing he had engaged to supply two young women with deadly weapons one to commit suicide the other to kill an enemy his mind was completely topsy-turvy was the genteel elegant commonplace albemarle street hotel about to become a sort of franc de boeuf's castle and he knew that both the women from whom he had just parted were absolutely in earnest very well he said to himself the laws can't help us some of us have only to act as the outlaw acts 
the hotel stood not far from the opening of grafton street as jim turned into grafton street he suddenly came in the moonlight on sir francis rose's acquaintance captain martin the patagonian traveller who was so curiously modest and even reticent about his experiences in patagonia the meeting did not impress jim at the time but he remembered it afterwards they exchanged a salutation hurriedly and jim passed through grafton street and then wandered vaguely down bond street to piccadilly he was uncertain what to do he would have liked to stand guard over clelia's hotel all night long he did in fact come back to the spot again and again hour after hour he revisited the scene never leaving interval long enough for any complicated series of incidents to take place in the meantime at last it became to his mind quite clear that nothing was likely to happen that night and he knew he had many things to think out before he was to return there next day and so he went home meanwhile the gallant captain martin had gone straight on to the voyagers club and asked for sir francis rose sir francis rose it seemed had left the club long before then captain martin went to the street near berkeley square and found that the lights in his patron's flat were out he thought that perhaps sir francis had not yet returned and so he lingered longer lingered very much longer but at last he gave it up for that night sir francis must have gone to bed and it certainly was not worth disturbing him merely to tell him that mr conrad had paid a late visit that night to the hotel in albemarle street to-morrow will do he said End of chapter twenty four